chapter 2 and verse 8. And I'll read through verse 19. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." All right, as always, before we get back to Colossians, let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity we have to um, worship you um, by hearing from your word and knowing how it applies to our lives. We pray you would just um, bless this time that um, your word, Lord, would grip us, it would engage our hearts, that um, all of the things that we're thinking of, Lord, uh, the troubles in our lives or the frustrations we have, um, Lord, we just pray that you would reign over all of those things, that you would control our hearts, that we would see our completeness in you so that um, you might alert us to all of the glorious riches and blessings that we have in you alone, Lord. Let us take our focus off of ourselves and let, it, uh, let us put it on you, and we need your help to do that. Please help me as I um, work through this text in Colossians that um, we might all be enriched by the glories found in your word. Um, we trust you, we love you, and we thank you so much for um, you blessing us during this time. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, if you guys aren't uh, there yet, uh, we're in Colossians chapter 2. We're just going to deal with just a couple of verses in 16 uh, to 19. This is kind of an interesting section together here. We're going to do the second half of it, 20 to 23, next week. Today is just 16 to 19. Um, as we get started, raise your hand if you do not have a cat or a dog, but you really want a cat or a dog. Okay, just a couple of you. Raise your hand if you know someone who really wants a cat or a dog. Great. Raise your hand if you already have a cat or a dog and you want to give it to one of those people who just raised their hand. Definitely 
Yeah, just a couple of you. Okay, so I really want a dog, and I bug Ashley about it all the time. Yes, we will get there. <laughs> Kevin can tell you later why he loves that picture. Let me ask you a question. If you were determining what kind of dog or cat you were going to get, ask yourself the question, what is the most important thing that I need in this dog? How am I going to judge uh, what's the dog I want as opposed to all the different breeds that are out there? What's the most important thing? For me, it's easy. Two things. Uh, bigness and cuteness. That's it. Bigness and cuteness. Those are the two things I want. Enter the chow chow. <laughs> Feast your eyes. The other day, a number of us were having some conversations about dogs, and as I was alerted to the chow chow, I said, this dog perfectly fits the qualifications that I'm looking for. And so I uh, went down the rabbit hole and I started looking up facts of chow chows and I found a beautiful video uh, from YouTube of a woman who was cleaning a chow chow. She was a dog groomer. And as she was cleaning it, this dog was perfectly behaved and it was just dealing with everything really well. I'm like, this is so perfect. And then the groomer very casually added, oh, by the way, every time there's a chow chow in my shop, my guard is up right away. I'm like, oh, okay, why? What's the deal? So I got even deeper down the rabbit hole to start looking up facts about chow chows. The first thing I found out is they're very intimidating apparently and they can be very aloof with strangers. The next thing I learned is they have a reputation for being very aggressive when they aren't trained from a very young age. Okay, it's starting to kind of be more worrying now. They were bred for hunting and guarding and were good at taking down leopards and wolves. They were trained for that. The next thing it said is they're not fantastic with children. If they can take down a leopard, that definitely makes sense. Um, so that started making me pretty nervous as well. I also found out in all the dog breeds, the chow chow is apparently the most cat-like. So basically the, the worst dog you could ever get. And I can see, I can see the chow chow slipping away from my grip with everything. And then the, the kind of piece de resistance, the last thing I see in the YouTube comment section, someone very casually threw in this comment. They said, a former furniture delivery man stated, never trust a strange chow chow. Even when their tail is wagging, they will smile and bite you. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> I learned something very, very important this week, which is that you have to keep the most important things most important. Yes, it is still important for me uh, to want to get a dog that is big-ish and cute-ish, but what's most important is that I can trust that it won't take down my child. That is what's most important. Now, if it's important to know what's most important when getting a dog, it is definitely worth knowing what is most important in your spiritual life. If you don't have in a vast swath of very important things in your spiritual life, if the most important thing doesn't stay the most important, there could be serious consequences in your spiritual life. And that is really where we're going in Colossians 2, 16 and 19. Paul, in a sense, is actually picking up uh, something that he left off in chapter 2, verse 8, where he was saying there are some things that people are trying to add to your spiritual life, but if they become part of your spiritual life, 
And if they become the most important thing in your spiritual life, chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns us that it will take us captive. Paul warns us of those things because he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. And he sums up all of the things that could take you captive with this simple phrase, they are not according to Christ. Now, what Paul is not saying is that um, there's all sorts of things that you should never even consider because they're not Christ. What he's really saying is that anything that doesn't start with Christ being the most important or anything that you add to your spiritual life that starts to compete for most importance with Christ, those things could take you captive. Those things could totally change your spiritual life to be about something other than Christ and not about Christ. And that is the most important thing we need to really learn from today. Paul is going to list all sorts of different things that the false teachers are trying to introduce to Christians to add to their spiritual life. And Paul's response to all of those things is this, set Christ as most important. Not just when you become a Christian, but most importantly, after you become a Christian. As you keep living your Christian life, you must constantly go back to that central gospel truth, Christ is most important. This is the way a, a pastor that I really like, he summed this up. He asked the question, must, what must I do now that I am saved? The answer is, you must do the same thing that you had to do when you weren't saved. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you learn to trust him in your salvation and for your forgiveness, if you trust him for your acceptance, if you take him first in learning how to live, if he is the way that you deal with suffering, sorrows, and disappointments, if in all of these things you trust Jesus, you're living your life as well as you can. That is what's most important. So this is what we're doing today. Paul is going to remind us that our completeness in Christ is what's most important. Our completeness in Christ is what's most important so that nothing else becomes more important. So that nothing else becomes more important. Very simple. Christ is most important, and we need to rely on that so that nothing else becomes more important. So the very first reminder that Paul gives us of these two reminders is also very simple. It's this. We are complete in Christ and not through our works. We are complete in Christ and not through our works. So as I explain what's going on here in verses 16 and 17, I want you guys to look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles because Paul is laying out a little bit of an argument and I want to explain how it makes sense in this context, okay? So let's start with verse 16. Verse 16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. This is what's going on in the Colossian church. The false teachers have come in, and they see the church like a marketplace. And when they come in, what they have to sell in this market is a specific view of what it means to be spiritual mature. So it's like they come in, and they have a booth set up, and they say, get your spiritual maturity here, but not maybe like someone from the 20s. But that's what they're doing. And you could sum up everything they're trying to sell with two words, diets and days. They're trying to sell diets and days. The first thing they say is, this is what you should do. You need to eat specific things, and you need to drink specific things. So this isn't not just saying, okay, guys, no more McDonald's. It's ungodly. It's impure. 
That is more of a wisdom issue. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about this. They say, we have been reading Leviticus and Numbers. And there's all these Jewish practices there, and they seem to be really important for purity. So we're going to add those back to Christianity. We forgot to do those. We're going to do them again, and that's going to make us more pure and more holy. And you have to do it too. You have to do it, or you don't care about this like we do. That's the questions of food and drink. But then there's also these three random things mentioned. There's festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. And those are kind of similar. They were reading and they said, while we were reading Leviticus and Numbers about all of these diets, we also saw there's these days, there's these celebrations, and they all mean something different, but they're apparently important. God told people to observe those, and we're not anymore. So we need to bring those back too, or else we're unspiritual. And the reason this seemed so appealing is because they were actually going to the Bible. They were going to the Old Testament saying, look at these things, they're... They're important there, so they must be important now. And they were right in a sense. They used to be legit practices, but the important thing is they used to be. When Paul argues back to them, he says, they're not anymore. And the reason they're not anymore is because they used to serve a purpose, but they don't anymore. The thing that they were supposed to remind Christians of, the place they had in their life, is not important anymore because It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And he says that in verse 17. He says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. If you think of a shadow, a shadow isn't really a thing in and of itself, right? You can't grab it. You can just see it. And the reason it's not a thing is because a shadow is actually pointing to a thing. The shadow is not an important thing. It's pointing to something that is actually important, that actually exists, that has a substance is the word he says. And that was, in a sense, what these practices were. And what they were pointing to was more important. So now that they have the more important thing, which is Christ, they're not supposed to care about those practices anymore. You can think about it like this. I heard a good illustration from a great pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. He said this. Imagine a soldier who's fighting in a war, and the thing that's motivating him, the thing that's keeping him going, is a picture he keeps of his family. And the picture that he keeps of his family reminds him of his family back home, and it motivates him to keep fighting in this war. And he misses his family so much that he actually hugs that photo, and he actually kisses that photo, and he keeps it close to his chest. But how weird would it be if he went home to see his family, and his family was there, he's like, hey guys, And he pulls out the photo and hugs that and kisses that. It makes no sense. He has the real thing. And the point of these practices was to point to something that was the real thing. But now that the real thing has come, the old practices have done their job. These specific Jewish practices. Now to help you understand this a little bit, I want to give you an example from one of the things that's mentioned. Now what you need to know about these Jewish practices, what we mean by them pointing to Christ was this. As you did these Jewish practices, you weren't just keeping a random command. God was giving the Israelites a specific command that when they did, it was teaching them something. As they did the command, it was almost like they were working out a lesson, teaching them something important about how God had a relationship with them. So let me give you a quick example from the last thing in verse 16. That's the Sabbath, probably the one that you guys uh, recognized 
first, the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was obviously a command based on rest. You guys probably know a bit about this. The Sabbath was a command that the Israelites didn't work. Now, it was based off the fact that God rested on the seventh day of creation, and it wasn't because God was tired, but because God was making a point. He was saying, everything is complete because I have completed it. And therefore, on the seventh of the week, I want you guys to rest because I am going to complete all the work you need to do. So what happened was when an Israelite kept the Sabbath, he'd be sitting there, you know, he didn't have a couch, but he'd just be sitting on his camel, and uh, maybe a camel. He, was just, he would sit down and he'd relax and he'd think to himself, okay, why am I resting today? I am resting because God is going to do everything that needs to get done today. He is going to do it. And he's going to do it now and he's going to do it one day when he comes again. And everything I need to do to be right with him, that's all going to be completed by him. Not me, but by him. That was the point of the practice. That was the lesson being worked out every time they kept the Sabbath. And then what happened in uh, the future, when you get to the Gospels, when Jesus has come and is walking with his people, in Matthew chapter 12, he says this, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying is that rest that the people of God were looking for and waiting for every time they kept the Sabbath, Jesus has said, that ultimate rest has come in me. The Sabbath has fulfilled its purpose. Now I am the Sabbath. I am the eternal rest. I am doing what you need. And so he says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Not rest for your actions, but specifically rest for your souls. Now, just a quick note, I know that um, people often, even in our context, quote the Sabbath and Sundays, it's the same thing, and there's lots of really interesting opinions on that, and we can talk after if you want, but the point is, the Sabbath that we practice now is still very different. You know, people who practice the Sabbath in a Jewish context, they can't even plug in a microwave or walk uh, to certain places and all sorts of things, and so that practice, even if we practice it in a type now, It's very different from that Sabbath. And the reason is very easy, which is just this. Whether it's rules that have been fulfilled by Christ or rules that we still do, all rules for Christians are only relevant because of Christ behind them. Either Christ has fulfilled a rule or we continue to do a rule that we know Christ will fulfill. Christ is the motivation. He's everything behind the commandments. He's everything that's important about them. And if it doesn't start with Christ, if Christ isn't the most important, then there will be a serious problem. And that motivation was wrong for the false teachers and that was why this weird reinstitution of Old Testament commandments started coming up as this temptation. And Paul is bringing that up because it's seriously dangerous for the people. The problem with the false teachers wasn't that they didn't understand this idea of Christ fulfilling them. It's because Christ wasn't in their view. Even though they said it's fine to worship Christ, they wanted to repractice commandments that Christ has fulfilled for a totally different reason. And their reason was because they wanted to demonstrate that they were the most spiritually mature. They wanted to demonstrate that they were better, more spiritually capable on their own. That they could practice these scenes and they could be seen with a strong reputation and they could be popular 
and as Paul directly mentions in verse 16, so that they could pass judgment on people. So they could go around and they'd be justified to be judgy in their judginess. That was the point for them. They wanted to say, look how good we are at doing these things. You'll only be spiritual mature if you do what we do. That was the motivation behind them. Now, if we take that worldview in, in Colossians and we try to come back now, it might seem like it doesn't apply. Okay, I'm not going to be tempted to go into Leviticus and start practicing those things because, you know, Christ fulfilled them, we're fine. But that's not the main point. The main point isn't to make you practice Jewish things. The point really behind this is that any action, regardless of the standard behind it, the point is actions aren't the place you start when you deal with spiritual maturity. It's really easy to think that being a complete Christian is all about doing things, and it all starts with what works I'm performing, and that is such a strong thing in our hearts, to focus on the actions and not the intentions behind the actions, that we can be tempted to look at what we do and not our motivations behind what we do. That's really the problem. And when Paul brings up judgment, it really brings up kind of two sides of the coin you can be on. If everything is about actions, there's really two ways that you can think about your actions if you don't look at your motivations at all. One is that you would be like a false teacher, that you would subconsciously feel this bit of judginess. Now, you might not think it's a judginess, but it might be these small prods about taking things, whether they're good things that we are supposed to do or things that don't matter, and making that the standard of spiritual maturity. You might think, I'm mature because I've been obedient since I was a kid, and I'm not like those crazy kids who run around on Sunday morning. That's not me. I'm mature because I've been helping with church stuff as far back as I can remember. I'm mature because I never went to public school, so I've not been affected by those things. Or maybe the opposite. I am mature because I did go to public school, and I had a kind of testing of my faith, and I was tougher than those people who didn't. I'm mature because look at my notebook. Look at the notes in my notebook. Do you know how many sermons I've listened to? Do you know many, how many notes I've taken? I am mature. Or you could be on the total other side. Maybe you don't feel judgment. Maybe you don't act like someone who judges because you feel the judgment you feel guilt, you feel bad. You look at what other people are doing and you think, I'm not mature because I'm not as far along as that person next to me. I'm not mature because I get easily distracted, honestly, when I try to read and pray my Bible. I'm not mature. I'm not mature because I looked at something inappropriate and I liked it. I'm not mature because I did something I know was wrong. I knew it was wrong and I did it anyways. I'm not mature because I can't figure out a way to get rid of my guilt. No wonder people judge me. If you're in either one of those camps, what is the solution to fix that? And again, that's the thing. We go so quickly to, how do I fix it? What do I do? And that's actually not the point Paul is bringing out. It's not about starting with, what do I do to prove that I'm saved and mature? That is a big distraction that can so often get us going in the wrong direction. It's not starting with what you do, it's starting with what has been done for me. 
It's not about what I do, it's what has been done for me. That is the place to start and that is where this text gets so comforting. And that's where this text really is a result of everything we've studied in Colossians before this. Remember verse 10, you have been filled in him. Why? You've been filled in him because of verse 11 to 15. In verse 13, he says, I've been made alive with Christ. How? Because of what Christ did. Christ performed this spiritual surgery on my heart. And I don't perfectly want the right things all the time, but I never would have ever wanted the right things for the right reasons unless Christ has done this to my heart. And how has he done this? Verse 14, because he paid and canceled this record of debt against me. Christ has forgiven me permanently. I am right with Christ. And if you're starting there, that is the place where spiritual maturity begins. That you don't run so far forward to actions that your heart is having an impossible time trying to catch up with why you're doing what you're doing. And if you start with that, You're starting in the right place. And the beautiful thing about this is, this isn't something we're chasing. This is the gospel truth that we already have. This is the Christ who has already completed us. If we have faith, we already have this. I was reminded of this week because about two months ago, I wanted to read a particular Christian book. All these friends I had were reading it and saying it was really good. And I'm like, that's awesome. I totally want to read this. So I went to Pastor Josh's office. I'm like, hey, do you have this book? He's like, yeah, totally, I have this book. So he gives me uh, the book, and I've been reading it for a couple months slowly. And the other day I was looking at my shelf, and I saw the book. I had the book. And I came back, and I was just like, hey, I, I had the book. He's like, yeah, I know, I gave it to you. I'm like, why did you tell me you gave me the book? I had the book. He's like, I, I just thought you may have lost it. And that is so honestly what we do as Christians. We go, what's the next thing I have to do? What's that thing, that insight or that technique or that strategy that's going to help me? And it's like, you have the gospel already. You've got it. You're good. You have no idea how beautiful that truth is. It is on the shelf getting dusty. Pull it off and remember it. And all your spiritual maturity will start there. And if anyone comes to you, whether they start looking at your actions, whether they are justified in looking at them, or whether they pick unimportant actions that you're doing that aren't biblical. Either way, Paul says, let no one judge you. Don't let people go to your actions and disregard your heart. Your basis for judging your spiritual maturity does have something to do with your actions. But first, first it has to do with your heart. All your good actions are good if they're motivated by Christ. And if you're trying to do good, even if you're doing wrong actions, if you are focused on Christ, he will do the work to clarify what that looks like in your life. And a lot of that clarification of what exactly it is, that's going to happen later in Colossians. We're going to go there later. But right now we're dealing with the foundational part. You already have Christ and you are complete in Christ. So start your spiritually maturing journey with Christ first. That's where you start. You are complete in Christ, not your works. And then Paul moves on to 18, 19, and he adds this reminder. The second reminder is this. We grow by Christ and not by our experiences. We grow by Christ and not by our experiences. Now, if you go back again to the false teachers in the market, their first selling point of why this is spiritually mature was to take uh, Christ-already-fulfilled Old Testament practices 
and reinstitute them to prove their spiritual maturity. But their spiritually mature pathway, their kind of selling tactic, it also had another point, and it was really this. They looked humble. The false teachers looked humble. Now, if someone is a Christian and someone comes in and says, hey, this is the path to spiritual maturity, and they're doing obviously sinful things, then you'd be like, okay, well, they're unlegit. They're not doing what the Bible says. But if they come in and you know that humility is important and they really look humble, then it's more tempting. That's the deceitful part behind this. And Paul pointed at least to two practices that really made them look humble. And those practices are asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism and worship of angels there in verse 18. Asceticism is a big old word. It's kind of complicated, but it's actually pretty straightforward. It's basically doing certain practices and disciplines to prove a kind of dedication to God, or you want to get closer to God. Now, in, in kind of chiller versions of asceticism, it looks like removing yourself. So people would like go into the wilderness, or they'd fast for a really, really long time, or they'd deprive themselves of normal things, and they'd say, I'm removing myself from the world with doing all these things because I'm going to be humble from it, and I'm going to get closer to God. That's, that's how I'm going to do it. But in a really extreme way, in extreme versions of this asceticism, it was actually harming yourself. Is, was this idea of whipping yourself or doing something that physically hurt yourself and you're saying, I'm a sinner, I deserve punishment, so I'm giving myself punishment and that's humble and it's gonna make me closer to God. So that's asceticism, it's pretty extreme. But the other thing was this worship of angels and as far as I've studied, because it, it's complicated and people have different opinions on this, this worship of angels wasn't necessarily making angels God um, it was more of an idea of God is so good and so holy, I can't get to him, so I need to pray to this angel or I need to do something for them, and then they'll like talk to God for me. They're like the intermediary. They're the middle guy. They're, they almost work like a priest because I can't talk to God, so I got to talk to this angel. Now, the result of those, of doing those practices, was apparently them saying, we are so humble that God has given us these amazing experiences. And he says that in verse 18 when he says, they go on in details about visions. What they're saying is they, apparently in their humility, God gave them the right to have these crazy visionary things where they're seeing things and experiencing God. And that just is so appealing, apparently. And so what they're saying is whether they saw spiritual things or God himself, what they're saying is you guys have not seen what we have seen, which means you could never be as spiritually mature as we are because you haven't experienced what we've experienced. And Paul doesn't waste a beat. He doesn't waste a second to point out that is all ridiculous. That is all based on verse 18. They are puffed up without reason. I heard another pastor say that was mad shade back in the day. They are dropping the mic. They are puffed up without reason. Bam. He's saying they're prideful, they are cocky. This is all coming from pride. This is all coming from this place of just doing things and then faking things just to have this kind of thing of separation. I'm spiritually mature and you are not. He's pointing out that for them it was all about reputation. It was all about false spirituality and popularity. Have nothing to do with that. And again, if you look at that context, and then you try to look to us now, 
you don't want to draw the wrong conclusion. The easy conclusion is, okay, if someone comes and says, I had this weird spiritual experience, and I saw God, you can be like, okay, bye. That's the easy one. Okay, that's the easy thing. But there's, I think, something a little deeper, something a little more directly related, which is basically this. In the same way the Colossians were tempted to make spiritual experience important, we also make experience or experiences super important. If you want to get a job, you need volunteer experience or you need to work at other jobs to get experience. Sometimes people will say that you're not mature because you haven't had what's called real life experiences. You haven't done certain things or all these kinds of things that really help to give you maturity. Maybe you think that before you get into a job, you need college experience or you need university experience. You need experience in the field. Experience is important. People also think that experience is really important with friends to grow the relationship or you need to have certain experiences in order that the two of you can connect on a better level. I remember one time, uh, me and Elliot were getting breakfast one morning, and I just remember really clearly, uh, I said, hey, have you seen the new Marvel movie? He's like, no, I actually haven't seen uh, a lot of the Marvel movies. I'm like, you haven't seen the Marvel movies? i like, surprised, and he's like, why is that weird? And I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I think it's really important to connect by experiencing all the Marvel movies. I think that's important. And it's funny how quickly that gets, and it's amazing to see how much of a temptation that could be. Again, in a worldly sense, if we're just thinking about experiences, I remember when I was in high school that if you never went to a party, if you never experienced a high school party and everything that goes on, you feel like it's almost impossible to talk to people. People your age, I constantly hear talking about a dating experience is something important, or kissing someone is something that is an important experience. For Tyrone, it's kissing a squirrel. Um, experiences are supposedly very important. And here's the tempting thing. Experiences are important. Experiences do have a place, but they don't define your spiritual maturity. They don't, don't define what's the most important thing in your spiritual life. And when they do, things can get weird so quickly. You can start conducting yourself and everyone else like they have a spiritual resume and you got to check off who's most mature based on who has done what things. And the more you care about the experiences, the weirder and more unimportant those experiences on the resume become. For example, I missed retreat. I missed retreat so I am missing out on building essential relationship time with people. I'm never going to catch up in closeness like everybody else did. You can say, I missed the STM. I didn't get to go on the short-term mission trip, so I guess I'm not mature. I guess I have not really grown. Here's one I constantly hear. This is one I had when I was your age. My testimony is boring. I grew up in the church. I have not experienced things other people did, so am I even a Christian? Has anything even really happened in my life? And that is so helpful for us to actually notice that in our lives to prove we, even in our own lives, look so much on the outside and not enough on the inside. Pastor Josh one time in a sermon mentioned a quote from Paul David Tripp that I think is really helpful here. He says, we don't live life based on the facts of our experiences, but based on the interpretation of those facts. And that's really helpful to get to this point. Experiences are helpful but it's what happened in the experience. 
It's how the experience was used by God sovereignly for you in a specific way that is only helpful if Christ became more exalted in your heart in that experience. If that experience has led to you finding Christ more important and not yourself, that's the judgment if it was a good experience. The false teachers were big on verse 18, disqualifying people for not having spiritual experiences. But the only experience you need is the gospel. And it's not just knowing Christ, it's knowing exactly who Christ is and what he has done for you. One of my favorite people to read in the Bible is the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter had some of the greatest experiences anyone could ever see. He saw the transfiguration of Christ. He got to walk with him and talk with him and be friends with Christ. And all those experiences did nothing to stop him from still betraying Christ. But what experience changed him? It was this moment after some time had passed after the crucifixion, when he is fishing again, it seems like he has given up on Christ and he looks on the beach and there is Christ. And he's reminded of the love and the generosity and the comfort of Christ and he jumps off the boat and he goes back to him. It was the reminder of God's love for him through Christ and the friendship of Christ even in the worst moment, the worst thing Peter could have ever done to Christ and Christ still loved him. It was recognizing that first, and most importantly, that changed his life. Even years later, when he wrote the book of 2 Peter, he said, I witnessed the glory of Christ shining on the mountaintop, and I heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter reminds us, I had the best spiritual experience anyone could ever had, and you know what he immediately follows up with? He says, yet we have the word more fully confirmed. Reading the word of God is better than seeing the transfiguration of Christ. How? How? Because the word of God gives a better confirmation, a better proof of Christ and an explanation of Christ and who he is and his deep love for sinners. Therefore, you can never, ever lose that connection to Christ being the most important part of your spiritual growth. If you start with Christ, if it's all about my connection to Christ is what's going to help me do things for the right reasons, if you start there, you will grow. That's what the false teachers were missing. Verse 19, they were not holding fast to the head. Christ is the head. They were not holding fast to this idea that first is the truth of Christ. And by God's grace, the truth of Christ produces faith. And then my faith after that by Christ, that produces real spiritual maturity and real spiritual fruit. It starts with Christ, who gives me faith and then produces spiritual fruit in my life. That is the reminder of Christ that completes my salvation. I don't need to grow in a certain measurable amount. I start with Christ, and he will produce the growth. And that should change the way you view your experiences in your life and what is the most important experiences you need to be a mature Christian. Maybe you don't get to serve people in another country on the STM this year. But if you get to serve your siblings and your family members from the heart, that's amazing. That is supernatural. That is a serious demonstration of real spiritual maturity. 
Maybe your testimony isn't exciting. Mine was not either. But just the fact that you could ever believe in Christ and that you could ever do anything motivated for the right reasons, that is amazing. That is real spiritual fruit. Maybe you have grown up in the church and maybe you haven't had the kinds of challenges that you think would test your faith. But if you are spending this time before you are challenged and you are in the word and you are seeing the glory of Christ and that is giving you a better view of Christ and that you are exalting Christ more in that devotional time, you will have courage for when that time comes and you will be amazed. You will be amazed at how effective God might use you in evangelism. And that is amazing. Now again, I don't want to say experiences aren't important. They are. But God has amazing, unique, specific experiences for you that are different from other people's. And whatever experiences he had, whether it is an STM, which is amazing, or whether you never leave Fullerton, ever, God will provide experiences that will help you exalt him more, and that will lead to spiritual fruit, which is the real measure of spiritual maturity. That's where it starts. And it doesn't just start for you. It starts with you, God growing you with other people with a community, which is something so amazing about verse 19. As we hold fast to the head, verse 19, the whole body, the whole church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows with a growth that is from God. We often think that we want to be somewhere else. And maybe God has a plan to bring you somewhere else, but the reality is, your experiences, your personality, your unique characteristics are all God-given, but that's not going to grow you closer with friends, and it's not going to develop deeper relationships. If you have a focus upon Christ, God is going to present you with people who are also focused on Christ, and you would be amazed that those become the moments, whether it's at a treat, retreat or in another country or on a regular Friday night, the kind of growth towards Christ together that God gives you is amazing and it is supernatural and it does make a difference if it's focused on Christ. John 15, 4, Christ says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine. God is so gracious to remind us, you are already complete. You are already full, filled with the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. You have everything you need. And the way God is going to build upon that by producing spiritual fruit and bringing you to the places and through the experiences that are unique to new, that is going to be the thing that is most amazing in your life. And those will be the things that give you the greatest assurances of your faith. And I'll end with this. This is a quote I read just a couple hours before the sermon, and I thought it was so helpful for those days that we feel like we aren't spiritually mature, and those days where we think our spiritual maturity is just awesome. This is for both of those days. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond God's grace. 
every day of our Christian lives should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. And we are not only saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day. This grace only comes through Christ, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. What you need most is God to work an experience of grace in your heart. And he has in Jesus Christ. And he has given you everything you need to complete your salvation and your sanctification in Jesus Christ. You have it all. You have the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you need to remind yourself of how that was applied to you, make sure you go back to chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, and look at how that came to you. And if you need to be reminded that you are already complete regardless of your works and regardless of your experiences, then look at where we just were. And he'll qualify what works looks like in the Christian life as we continue in chapter 3. And next week, what we're going to look at is how Christ is essential to help you stop sinning. The cure to stopping sin as well is also found in Christ, but that's what we'll cover next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that classic prayer that we would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and walk with you more nearly. We want to walk, see, love, and be comforted by you alone. Lord, you have so many good things for us to do. And you have so many amazing experiences for us. But we know, most importantly, we need a vision of you. We want to do the right things from the right heart, and that only comes if you are most important in our lives. We want to have amazing experiences in which you become more exalted in our hearts, but that has to start if you are most important in our hearts. Lord, we want to recognize how much we need you and how much you love us, that you gave your son for us who died on the cross to give us this amazing life, no matter what the world thinks about our lives, Lord. If you are producing spiritual fruit in us from faith that is desperately dependent on you, whatever you have for us will be amazing. We want to trust that, rest in that, be complete in that, not in ourselves, but fully by you, who has already been given to us. Let us never give that up. Let us hold the gospel as the greatest, rich treasure that we could possibly have because you and what you have done for us is the good news that will spiritually mature us in all our days to come. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Thank you guys for your attentiveness. Thank you for being attentive in a tricky part of scripture here. Next week is going to have a little bit of that too. This is kind of the trickiest part of Colossians chapter 2. But signal. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Happy birthday to you. Woo! Happy birthday, dear Will. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Give Will Lau a hug. He really likes hugs. (laughs) 
I was going to say, as Will Lau escapes the reach of Cameron Orohudos, you are dismissed for small groups. I'm going to, I think you guys know where to go, so we will talk to you guys soon. When you are finished your small groups, if any of you are free to come back and stack chairs for uh, Women of the Word tomorrow, that would be amazing. Thank you guys so much. Hey, sir.